Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at first, first listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see what music does to people it gives me a lot of hope if you liked locatora before you're gonna love season nine subscribe to our show and you'll see why locatora is your prima's favorite podcast listen to locatora radio as part of the michael Cultura podcast network available on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm producer Victor Wright, and every week we explore top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. We connect you with the journalists and people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the Weekend Edition, we bring you some of the best stories from the week. Is buy now, pay later the new layaway? This model allows consumers to buy something, take it home, and then pay for it later in installments, often with no interest. As tempting as this may be, especially if you're trying to move away from credit cards, experts do warn that this can lead to overspending, especially if you already have a history of buying stuff without having the money to pay for it. For more on the buy now, pay later model, Oscar Ramirez is joined by Claire Ballantyne, personal finance reporter at Bloomberg News. It's one of those services that makes it easier to buy things um, at almost every checkout counter now. There's some form of this. And essentially, consumers like it because it breaks up their purchase into smaller payments. Usually one is due right away, and then between four and six installments are due and so those can be every two weeks, every month. It's essentially just a way of breaking up the payments. But the key thing is there's no interest as long as you pay on time. Yeah, that's an important distinction. And what sets it apart from, you know, maybe getting a credit card? I mean, especially for people that have bad credit, maybe you can't get a credit card. This could be a good option, right? Especially as you mentioned, yeah. there's, there's no interest payments or anything, but it works differently. And, and that, and, you know, it has some benefits and pitfalls because of that. It does. And a lot of young people are very against credit cards or are wary of them. You know, with those high interest rates, you can really get in trouble, especially younger consumers in the Gen Z segment. So this is a sort of a way to work around that. It's one of those services that at times sounds a bit too good to be true. And sometimes it is in that it causes you people to spend more than they actually have. There's apps now that you can do it 
year round. I mean, you you uh, either buy stuff straight through them or you use it as a payment option. And then uh, now you're just paying money to the app people. Yeah, well, what makes it so easy now is that so many retailers offer it. So that can be right through the checkout counter, you know, when you're going to, say, the online Sephora page. Some also have it for brick and mortar stores in person. So it kind of just pops right up when uh, you're checking out. And then what can get people in trouble is that there are so many of these and you can use different services for different payments. So, you know, you could have $200 owed to Corna and 400 to Affirm and 800 to Afterpay. And then you're trying to keep up with all of these different due dates and making sure they're all paid back on time. It can get really complicated. Now, okay, so there was a survey from Credit Karma So they're saying that a quarter of respondents saw their total debt increase after using some of these apps and these buy now, pay later services. 20% of them ended up using credit cards to pay down those balances. So you got to get, you got to be really careful. And, you know, as I mentioned, financial experts are saying if you're the type of person to overspend already, you should be steering clear from these things. Yeah, and I think it's all a matter of sort of, you know, how well do you know yourself and what's going to be kind of a risk for you. If you do this responsibly, it can be really helpful. I mean, you know, just to not have to pay a full sum at once, maybe separate things out month by month. But if you're the kind of person who is prone to, you know, seeing something they want and impulse purchasing it, it can get pretty dangerous. And what really can get people is if you don't pay these back, then there come extra fees, extra charges, it can affect your credit score. So it's kind of, in some cases, really not helping people who already are struggling with uh, with debt and with their spending habits. And how can it affect her credit score? Because some of the things, as you mentioned, they'll, they'll, they can pile on some fees. They could send it away to a, a debt collection. Is, is that where it would affect your credit? Yeah, absolutely. That's where it would start to really hurt your credit score. You know, it would definitely depend on how much it is, how long you haven't paid it off, circumstances like that. But it's not a risk-free service, and it's definitely not free money. Claire Ballantyne, personal finance reporter at Bloomberg News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. How many friends do we really need? Some say we can hold up to 150 meaningful relationships. However, research may indicate that less is more. The magic number of close relationships is actually around three to five. These relationships take a long time to develop with it taking around 200 hours to become close to someone. A difficult achievement, especially as we grow into adulthood. For more on how it may be beneficial to cultivate fewer but closer relationships, Oscar Ramirez is joined by Ali Volpe, senior reporter at Vox. So I don't know about you, but coming out of the pandemic, I sort of felt overwhelmed. Like, I need to touch base with all these people I've lost touch with over the last two years. And that can kind of lead to a little bit of burnout. So instead of like stretching ourselves super thin, we should really focus on a couple of those really core close friendships. In the 90s, an evolutionary psychologist named Robin Dunbar posited that we can handle 150 meaningful social relationships at any time, which is a lot. But it's sort of like a tiered. 
it's almost unimaginable that like I would know 150 people, but it's possible, I guess. But that number is actually tiered. And so in the smallest circle, almost thinking of it like a target is yourself. And then the next circle out is, you know, your partner who's almost an extension of yourself. And then there is a circle of your coolest friends, which are anywhere from three to five people. And those are the ones that we've really invested the most time. We feel like we know the best and who know us the best. They say, uh, you know, uh, uh, reaching a level of inti- intimacy with a close, close friend is about 200 hours. That's a long time. Yeah. And you think about like how we spread that time out over the course of a friendship, um, even just thinking about like college friends, someone you meet in your dorm room and how that grows into a really deep friendship. And so it is helpful when we are constantly like seeing that person every day, like at work or at school. And then when you think about adulthood, and I think part of the reason why people say meeting new friends in adulthood is so hard is because like we don't have those sort of places where we can run into a person and develop those hours as long um, over a period of time, which is why friendship is work. And it does require mutual effort on both parties. But yeah, it is a lot of hours. (laughs) And so how do we foster these relationships? I I love one of the people you spoke to had a quote in here in your story, and it makes perfect sense. Knowing another person's schedule is an act of intimacy. You know, like if you know someone enough to know where they're going to be at at a certain moment or so-and-so's got work today, you know, we'll connect on another day. That is a real big sign of how close you can be. Yes. Um, Jeffrey Hall, who is actually the researcher who came up with the 200 hours number on to quantify close friendship. Um, he was the one who, who said that wonderful, wonderful quote. But, you know, yeah, knowing where someone's going to be or what's going on in their lives because you're regularly keeping in touch with them is such a surefire sign that, like, you guys are close. Like, think about some of your really great friends. Like, I know what my best friend is doing today, that her dog went to training. And so we just talk that much that we know what's going on in each other's lives. And so that is really a huge signifier of closeness. And so if you're feeling like you want to get closer to some people, it's just maintaining that conversation with someone, having a routine. Research also from Jeffrey Hall has shown that, you know, having an ongoing routine with your friends, whether that's like a book club or like a weekly fitness class you guys do together, just knowing that you will see that person again in an extended period of time is makes it so much easier to keep in touch with someone. We're talking about very close relationships. And, you know, there's a lot of people out there that are lonely and and don't feel like they can make a lot of these connections. And a lot of this research shows, a lot of the experts you spoke to even say, even just talking with acquaintances, connecting with people on smaller levels really helps you uh, on the other side of things. Yes, I love interacting with acquaintances, anyone from like the barista at the coffee shop to like the person who cuts your hair. These aren't people that we would consider close friends, but they do have an amazing effect on our lives. They can make us more empathetic because we're, you know, taking a peek into someone else's life. They can help us be more social even when we haven't had practice. And it is important to have this sort of healthy, quote unquote, social diet of, you know, having these really close friends, but also having, you know, the dessert of having acquaintances or weaker ties. All of these things are equally as beneficial to us. Ali Volpe, senior reporter at Vox. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. 
Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine. Hosted by me, Danielle Robay. And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. How does the brain of a man who can speak around 37 languages work? Vaughn Smith is a carpet cleaner, but he's also a hyperpolyglot. Hyperpolyglots can usually speak 11 languages or more, but Vaughn is different. He's able to speak around 37. He began learning different languages in order to feel closer to people. After getting an MRI just to see how his brain works, it turns out his brain functions completely differently from most people who are monolingual. For more on Vaughn and his ability to speak different languages, Oscar Ramirez is joined by Jessica Contrera, reporter at the Washington Post. It turns out that that some people, they really have this ability. There have been a number of um, what we call hyperpolyglots documented throughout history and living today. And even though Vaughn, you know, definitely does not flaunt this and doesn't necessarily wear, you know, even really tell people about it. I've seen him in action using his language skills and it's just completely remarkable. So yes, he has about um, 24 languages that he can carry on lengthy conversations in. And when I asked him to please count all of his languages that he knows, you know, at least the basics in, the number was uh, just over 40. So he's fluent in at least eight. He says fluent. So that's English, Spanish, Portuguese, Russian, Czech, Slovak, Bulgarian, and Romanian. Those are his top ones, but he's got so much other languages under his belt. So there are a lot of languages that have died out in our world, and there are many that are still endangered. And so he has spent part of his time investing in those languages, some that are more well-known, like Nahuatl uh, in Mexico, and some that are, are really spoken by a small, small number of people. So um, one of his favorite languages is the Salish language, which is spoken by a group of people in Montana, and they have really welcomed Vaughn into their community. You know, he didn't just sort of read this on the internet. He actually has been to Montana multiple times, been to the reservation where there is a language school for Salish, um, and he's constantly working to improve his Salish skills um, and really try to spread love of indigenous and native languages to all different kinds of people to show them that, you know, they have value, that he values them. And it's really infectious to watch. Fawn Smith as a person, uh, where does he come from? Where does he live? You know, what set him off to kind of learn so many languages at a young age? So Vaughn grew up in and around Washington, D.C., which really he credits as a huge reason for how he was able to have exposure to so many languages. Of course, there are people from all around the world who live here in the D.C. community. And particularly when he was in high school, he had already sort of realized he had this affinity for language. And, you know, as we talked about, I think what Vaughn wants is 
is what everyone wants is to, to feel connected to the people around them. And in a lot of ways, Vaughn did struggle with that. He realized later in life that he is most likely on the autism spectrum. And so certain things like social cues, you know, are a little bit more difficult for him. But through languages, he really offers him an ability to connect with all different kinds of people. So at his high school, where there were many different groups of students from around the world, he used languages as a way to become friends with different groups of people. So by the time he was finishing up high school, he already was working on Amharic, (laughs) Russian. He was working on Romanian. He was already amassing a huge amount of languages, as well as, you know, his native languages, which are both English and Spanish. One thing that I did uh, find interesting, right, is his English accent, let's say. There is really no accent. It's very neutral. And you would think somebody speaking so many languages, some stuff might have rubbed off or anything. But yeah, his English accent, very neutral. What what did you think of, of that? Oh, yeah, that's a really interesting observation, especially because something that Vaughn does incredibly well from the people I've talked to is called like accent reproduction. So if you, he were to ask you, you know, how do you say, what are we having for dinner in Lithuanian? Um, and a Lithuanian speaker said the sentence back to him, he would be able to replicate it almost perfectly. And so all of these different people that I watched him interact with, they were just amazed by his accent reproduction and and, and the the accuracy of his accents. Now, that's not to say he's perfect in all of them by any means, but when, for example, we were in a Starbucks and he befriended some people, he heard their accent, his friend went up to them and and they started talking. We learned that they spoke Dutch. And so he started um, speaking in Dutch with them and they were just totally amazed that he's, he's never been to the Netherlands. In fact, he's never traveled really much at all, except for to Mexico in a very brief trip to Belgium. Um, otherwise, he has not been to a lot of these places, but his accent in those languages is, is really remarkable. You accompanied him to MIT where they did a brain scan on him. They played languages and, and kind of watched how his brain was firing off. And some interesting things came out of there because you also got your brain scan too. And what you basically learn is that his brain isn't working as hard as uh, someone like you, maybe myself, who I know English and Spanish, and that's pretty much it. But uh, his brain isn't working as hard as ours would be. That's right. So basically, what we wanted to know from these folks at MIT who have been studying how the brains make language is essentially, does his brain look different than my brain? or just any other monolingual brain. I myself, I've I've really struggled always to learn language. And now I realize maybe I I sort of have been copping out a little bit and just saying, (laughs) oh, it's difficult for me. So I don't have the time to do it as much as I would love to. But what I've learned, you know, from Vaughn is that like, it doesn't matter if you do it perfectly. When you try, you know, you really are showing someone a sign of respect. And so I watched Vaughn do this over and over again. I really wanted to know what was happening in his brain. So yes, what we learned from Evelina Federenko at MIT and our graduate students was that when you look at 
our brains under an fMRI machine and you put us through tests that show you know we were sort of reading English words and when we would see a word that has meaning in English our, those language areas of our brains would light up on the screen essentially by tracking the blood flow in our brains and it became very clear um, when they analyzed the results that Vaughn's language areas are incredibly small which is a little bit counterintuitive, right? You would think, oh, they're, they're going to be big because they are storing so much information. Um, but how it actually works is, is sort of like a muscle, right? Because his, it's so efficient, right? He, he doesn't need to use that much of his brain in order to do the task of comprehending language. And you write at the beginning of the piece, but why is he cleaning carpets? You know, uh, somebody can speak so many languages. I mean, you can make a very lucrative career being an interpreter, different things like that. But he didn't go that route. Uh, I guess he found it difficult to stick with certain jobs or just never had opportunities. And he kind of likes the casualness of what he does. Yeah, I think in our society, we're really accustomed to deciding someone's value based on kind of what's on their resume, right? And you have someone like Vaughn, especially in a place like D.C., he didn't go to college. And things like making a resume, things like knowing, okay, here's how I apply to a job, you know, kind of point A to point B, those kinds of executive tasks are definitely more difficult for him. Um, Reading social cues is more difficult for him. And so what he explained to me is, even though he would really like to be utilizing his languages for work. It's just been really difficult for him to find something that would work and last. And so right now, I think a lot of people in his life feel like he has these talents that are being wasted in some ways. And I do, I, I do see that. But I also see that despite that, he finds all different kinds of ways to find meaning in his life. You know, I've never met somebody with so many hobbies. He, (laughs) you know, he has a model train set. He develops film photography. He's an amazing cook. He travels um, and he makes the time to just sort of sit in a coffee shop and meet new people. And, uh, you know, here in D.C., everything is so frequently go, 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 you know, one achievement to the next. And so I think spending time with Vaughn has been really inspiring for me to think about, you know, not just, okay, I'm going to really put in the time now to learn Spanish and Italian, (laughs) but also um, sort of shape my view of how I spend my time and how I connect with the world. Jessica Contrera, reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for for having me on and for highlighting the story. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by yours truly, Victor Wright, hosted by Oscar Ramirez, and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm producer Victor Wright in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. 
Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at First, first Listen. listen. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.